kind of like the, the rhythm and stuff, but it's all about me <laughs> or I or whatever. And, oh, what was me? Uh, you know, it's not uh, like the regular hymns that we sing in our hymn, uh, hymnals. Uh, when I first became a Christian, I ended up really liking hymns. They just, they, they not only spoke to my heart, but they spoke about my Lord, and that's what I loved about them. So anyway, that's what I got out of this. Okay, so uh, we're going to answer four questions today, and we could spend uh, literally many days studying worship. Uh, but we narrowed it down to about 45 minutes <laughs> and uh, or however long it takes us to get through these four questions. Uh, very well thought out questions. I had nothing to do with producing them. Um, somebody else did. So the first one, um, kind of Irv, I, I don't know if you want to address what is worship and why is it relevant to the Christian's relationship with Christ Jesus. You, you kind of mentioned that. Um, and then Michael kind of segue into his question from there. Well, what I realized is if you go into the Old Testament, you know, and, and try to see where hymns and, and songs came into the picture, uh, I would think that uh, 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 and we're going to get into that in, a, in the next uh, question, but if you think about what happened when they went through the Red Sea, uh, right away they talked about music. They, they made a song that we were delivered and that's really, when you think about what worship and what hymns are all about, we're trying to express what Christ did for us. And we do that in our worship and in our hymns. And uh, I'm gonna share one scripture out of 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, and we with all unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, or this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. And the reason I picked this hymn is because worship is a declaration that God is in the midst of all of us. And we are reflecting him uh, to others and uh, to the world. But there's a, there's really a war going on, a spiritual war going on, uh, and it's against uh, the lie that God is not in control, that he is not in amongst us, he's not with us, and worship brings that out, where two or three are gathered together, there I am I in the midst of them, and that brings us out. Worship together teaches us to submit and to surrender to our uh, care to our God, our priorities, our plans, our hopes, our dreams, and even our fears. Worship and pray, uh, prayers are not a guarantee that our problems will go away or subside uh, or will change immediately, but it will definitely help change and direct our hearts 
and our perception in life towards God, being able to worship is also a blessing because it gives comfort to uh, our presence and hope for the future. So really, worship is God word, but we, we receive something from our own worship. And that's really what worship is all about, is giving to God, but it seems like God just keeps giving more back to us, so. Okay, Mike, you wanna? <clears throat> yeah, so my question was actually, when and where are we supposed to worship? But I could not answer when and where without ask, answering what. What is worship? Um, because I think we find very often that, at least I have, that worship is something you do at church on a Sunday morning. So I, I had, in, you know, I had in my thing. If you ask ten people on the street the question, you know, when and where should we worship? I, I believe nine out of ten would say something like Sunday morning in a church. You know, that would be their simple answer. But worship is so much more than, than just something that you do on a Sunday morning in a church. So I had to start by defining what worship is. And if you look up worship, it is the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration of a deity. To show reverence and adoration for a deity, honor with religious rites. Well, then as you do that, well, what does expression mean? Well, expression is the process of making known one's thoughts or feelings. Well, what is reverence? Reverence is a deep respect for someone or something. <clears throat> um, it also says in an adoration. Well, what is adoration? Well, it's a deep love and respect. Worship or veneration. So in, in the definition of adoration is the word worship. Well, what is veneration? That's great respect or reverence. Um, and then when we go to honor, it is a high respect or great esteem. And then esteem is respect and adoration, typically of a person. So when you look at, and then word respect, a feeling of deep admiration for someone or something elicited by their abilities, qualities, or achievements. So worship really is, you know, adoring, feeling of reverence, the feeling of adoration, all these things towards, towards God for what he has done in our lives. I mean, that is worship. So when and where do we worship really is anytime and anywhere. Um, it is not in a church building. And the word church has been defined so many like, as a building. But when you read in the Bible, it says in 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, it says, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. So that Greek word church uh, is used 114 times and it simply means an assembling or a gathering together of people. It doesn't mean a building or, you know, the Lutheran church next door, even Hiawatha Bible Chapel. It is a gathering together, gathering together of, of people um, is what the church is. So when and where do we worship? We don't have to be in a church to worship. Um, I, I thought of back in the 90s, if you grew up, you thought of um, Michael Jordan. So many people, um, their parents would be, oh, my son worships you. Well, what did that mean when my son worships Michael Jordan? Well, it's... So 
to worship someone, you know, that at home when they were, they would be watching TV and just be in awe of what Michael Jordan was doing. They'd be laying in their beds thinking, oh man, I wish I could make three pointers. I wish I could win the final game. At school, they'd be talking about, did you see what Michael Jordan did yesterday? And so they're in awe of him. They were inspired by him. They just could not stop talking about him. So many people in the 90s would have their tongue out, making shots. I mean, it was like they wanted to be like Mike. Remember that thing? I want to be, I want to be, I want to be like Mike. Um, and that is a form of worship. It is, it is your thoughts, your, your emotions, your, your time is invested, and you, you look up to someone for the things that they can do better than what you can do. And so when we worship God, it is really that. Um, to be in reverence, if we look at Nehem 1.5, it says, The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence. Um, that is a form of reverence. It is a form of worship. Psalms 104.7, But at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. Um, an expression of it would be, To the, to the choir master, a psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Um, so it's like that Michael Jordan thing, right? We were at, you go to work and you're proclaiming what he did. You're like, man, did you see that last shot he made? You're just proclaiming something. And that is what we should do in, in worship. Um, worship is Psalms 66.4. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Um, to esteem him, Job did in, in 12, Job 12, 7 through 10. But ask the beasts, and they will teach you, the birds of the heavens, and they will tell you, or the bushes of the earth, they will teach you, and the fish of the sea, they will declare to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. So first, to understand when and where to worship, I had to define what is worship. But if we look in 1 Corinthians 12, 24-27, um, which are most presentable parts, do not require, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So there is this corporate worship where we come together as an assembly in a building. And I think many of us believe, you know, that is worship, is to gather here and sing and do different things. But that alone is not worship. That can be a part of worship, um, but it isn't, it isn't necessarily what worship is. Um, in 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. I read that already, sorry. And then in 1 Corinthians 14, 23. So if the whole church comes together and everyone does things, okay, so 1 Corinthians 14, 26. There should be order in worship. Um, what then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn, a word of instructions, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. 
Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. So when we do come together for worship, um, it, is, it is our obligation to be obedient, to have hymns, to have um, psalms and different things that we can, we can bring up and we can build up one another in that, in that time of worship. So there's our individual worship at home where we are in reverent and we're in awe. That could be um, while I'm hunting or while we're out hunting. Well, it could be on a drive to work as we see the sunrise. Um, it can be at work. So you can worship wherever you are and whenever you want. But then there is this assembling together that the, the Bible calls us to have be the church, the body, um, where we can also take these this love and adoration, and then we can proclaim it as a body um, in Christ. And in here we have, and that if, of that is singing, there is praying, um, there is preaching and teaching, and there's also the practicing of the ordinances, the, the body and the bread of Christ. Um, but none of them are actually worship, but they can be a part of how we do worship. So that's my answer. Can I add something to that before we yeah. go to Joe? Uh, one thing I did look at in the Old Testament, what inspired people to worship? What caused them to worship? And like I was saying uh, just when I started, uh, the Song of Moses, for example, and uh, we find this in uh, 1 Samuel 10, 1 Chronicles 15, it says, then Moses and the people of Israel sang a song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed graciously. Uh, the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea in Exodus 15.1. What the Lord did inspired them to write and sing this song. And that's really what caused all the hymn writers to write all these hymns that we sing. And uh, also music in the New Testament uh, and the use of instruments. Uh, when we think about, it talks about instruments in the, the uh, Old Testament. We know that Christ sang a hymn, but we do not know if they had instruments present when he sang, unless somebody happened to carry their guitar with them or what, you know. But anyway, we know that Paul did not condemned the use of instruments, but he did not refer as illustrations to the use of instruments in terms of uh, incorrect usage or not skillful players. Noisy gongs and clanging cymbals, I mean, we know he used those, and those were really kind of instruments. And versus instruments played with a distinct note, and we see that in 1 Corinthians 13 and 14. Uh, instruments was used specifically uh, to refer to specific instruments of the age and uh, uh, the times when they used them, uh, and that was in Psalms. And we know that David played a harp, and uh, so we know there was instruments used, because there are some people that will say you shouldn't use instruments in worship well i believe in them and they really help and this morning i even leaned over and said to, to john and he 
confirm he did too. We were thanking the Lord that Liz was here. <laughs> so we love our piano players. And you too back there. <laughs> okay, that's all I have to add on that one. Okay, how about Joe? All right, um, my question is two questions actually. So, um, but the question is, is worship limited to just music and singing? Why do we sing and incorporate music into our worship service? And for the first question I wrote, no, it is not limited to just music and singing. Since worship is coming to one higher uh, than you and giving them reverence, as Mike pointed out, you can do it wherever, whenever, and there's no uh, time limit or place limit. But in a lot of modern churches, they interpret worship hour as the time that they sing songs to God. So most of them have made just music as their time of worship, even though in the Bible itself, it shows that worship is bowing down and giving reverence to God. This is Joshua 514, Psalm 57, and some other places. I think they get this idea from when people came to the temple, uh, as Samuel's parents did in 1 Samuel, and or in meeting together as they did in the New Testament, uh, when the church met together as in Acts 242 where they did the break in the bread, but some churches have gone more towards the entertainment to lure people in or keep them coming. <clears throat> so an easy way of entertainment is by music. That is the reason why a lot of churches do music, but we do and should do music along with our worship because we should express things in the words that we sing, how we feel about our sin, our humility from that, and we feel about our need and love to our Savior is expressed in the words and emotions of the songs. In the Bible, singing is incorporated with worshiping God. Psalm 66.4 talks about coming and worshiping him and also singing songs. <clears throat> the well-known uh, portions in Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19 about coming and singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This is where churches have gotten the reason of singing along with worship. So it is good for us to sing songs to God. Music is important to God. In a sermon I heard recently, Chuck Swindoll says, music is so important to God that he even put the highest angel, which was Lucifer at the time, in charge of it before his fall. So that shows how much it means to God. Music was created by God as a way for us to show our feelings from our hearts and souls to him. So that is why we need to sing when we worship God because we worship in reverence and humility and we sing as an expression of it and what is in our hearts. So that is why we need to mean the words that we sing. As Pat always said or quoted, Christians always sing lies. And the Bible says in Ezekiel 33:32, uh, how Israel is like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument for the hearer what you say, but they will not do it. Even though this is a comparison on how Israel takes God's warnings, it does show how one can abuse songs and not go with them the right way. We may sing about it, but do we live by it? That is why I think worship needs both music and the reverence, a reminder of our sin to God. The music and words in the hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs, as in Colossians and Ephesians, have words that we can apply and remember easier by singing, as long as we live by and listen to and mean what we sing, so we can sing words of worship, reverence and humility, and words of praise, acknowledging him for what he has done in a joyful and thanksgiving way. Praising is always elevating him to the lordship that he deserves. 
That's all. That's your story. And you're That's my story. I wrote it. I read it. <laughs> well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw another question out for the group in general. Is there a distinction between uh, within the, the Christian music realm between songs which are worship oriented and songs that are more, I don't want to say entertainment, but they're just more edifying to the individual. And is there a, is there a, um, a problem with listening to Christian music that is not specifically intended for worship? Does that make sense? certain types of songs for might mean worship and might, some might not yeah and Even is there a problem with the ones that are not yeah you could classify camp songs in that group yeah some yeah, because there are some camp songs that are nice and some are for praise some are for praising uh -huh. some are for worship some are for different things mm -hmm. like i had some things in the last question that i had thought of like even in the book of Psalms, there were some that were for special occasions, like going to the Ascension, going mm -hmm. to Jerusalem. Some were for when he was uh, in sorrow and other things that he went through. So we have different songs for different things, mm -hmm. and some, yeah, maybe. You know, we all have favorite hymns, and I'm just going to share one thing out of my favorite hymn, and it's 322 in the Red Hymnals at Calvary. The reason I like this hymn is because it would have it, it it's exactly what I would have wrote if I'd have wrote a hymn. Except every time I sing this, so I think of Pat because of what he says. Christians don't tell lies; they sing them. <laughs> when I get to the second verse of this hymn, it's like in my lion <laughs> because it says, uh, "By God's word, at last." Uh, no, it's it's uh, three. I'm sorry. Now I've given to Jesus everything. Now I gladly owe him as my king. Now my rapture soul can only sing of Calvary. Is that true? Not all the time. There are times that I might get angry. And am I giving to Jesus everything? <laughs> so, you know, is it wrong? No, it's not wrong to sing this hymn. It's just. I know my own heart mm -hmm. and God knows my heart better than I know my heart. And so when I sing that hymn, I just kind of smile. And I think, I wish I did give to Jesus everything. I wish I really, really claim him as my king. But then it says, my raptured soul. That's the key. <laughs> my spiritual awakening my new self if you want to call it that uh, i don't like to say that i got two dispositions <laughs> but i do i guess but my since i became a christian yes i would like to give jesus everything and i do give him everything i possibly can until i fail and then i confess my sin because it is sin so I love this hymn, but I still, it's still my favorite because it takes me to Calvary. So I just wanted to share that. William Newell wrote oh, that. Oh, one, one more thing before yeah, go ahead. I just wanted to, when I had my uh, 
scripture reading last Monday. Uh, Dan Frazee uh, 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 read something and I said, boy, that's good. Why don't you send it to me? So he took a picture of his cover of his Bible and he said, I'm only going to read three things. It's about uh, prayer, praise, and worship and what they are. Prayer is an occupation of the soul with its needs. Praise is the occupation of the soul with the blessings. Worship is the occupation of the soul with God himself. And I thought that was so good. And that was by A.P. Gibbs, by the way. So I can't take credit for that. <laughs> well, to answer your question, yeah, go ahead. I mean, Psalm, the book of Psalms is like a book of songs. And, mm -hmm. and in there, David, it's not always just worship and praise. There is also hurt and his and pain and all those things that mm -hmm. he writes and, and sings about um, in his psalms. So they may not always be worship, right. but they are all from our, you know, true worship or the songs are yeah. just how, what is coming from our heart? How are we feeling? How mm -hmm. is, um, what are we going through? And, and, and saying them to God for he, he, we know he hears us. So I think, yes, there can be both um, worship and other types of songs. And many of them yeah. are about mm -hmm. hurt. You mm -hmm. know, a lot of songs are just about our hurt and about right. struggles and all those types of things. So Some can be um, testimonials or um, evangelical songs mm -hmm. in nature yep. as well, promoting um, who Christ is for the listener to understand. There was a group in the... I'm sorry, hit the wrong button. Yes, Lord? There was a group in the 80s and 90s, uh, some of you may have recalled them, uh, with the odd name of Sixpence None the Richer. And they were chastised pretty often because they would go and be kind of the the lead uh, the lead in for very non-Christian hard rock groups like ACDC and whatnot, and yet they were a, a very um, evangelical Christian group, and their songs, um, many of them that they would present at these very pagan concerts, were not worshipful in that regard, but they were evangelical presenting Christ to an audience who otherwise would never hear him. And so there's a whole, I think in our agreement here, there's a, there's a whole spectrum of music that is um, certainly edifying and, and useful in various um, realms, not specifically worship all the time. Um, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, and I, I do have one more thing to add before I think. Please do. So, mm -hmm. there is like a raw worship. If you in Matthew fifteen seven through nine, you know Jesus says, "You hypocrites!" Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Um, so you can go to many church services as you, you can go to as many church services as you want, um, but if your heart isn't right, you know that's not worship. And 
I think a lot of times people go to church, they think, well, you know, there's three hymns on the plaque up there. Those are the three hymns we're going to mm -hmm. sing today. They, they sing them. They think they're, they, that they were worshiping, but they weren't worshiping. Their hearts were far right. from him. Their minds were on, you know, are the Vikings going to win today? <laughs> you know, where am I going to be going after church? Um, their hearts were thinking about mowing the lawn, whatever it might be. Um, so their hearts were far from them. They were, their lips were moving, but they weren't worshiping. So there is a right type of worship and there is a wrong worship. And in singing, I think you can get tricked into feeling like you're worshiping. But if your hearts are not, if your hearts are far from him, that is not any form of worship. Good. Which kind of brings me up to, to my question, but before I, I go there, um, the catalyst that got this panel um, discussion going was the um, interest on the part of the musicians to uh, consider a new hymnal. And uh, we've, I think you're probably all familiar with that now. And I was listening to the hymns this morning and I was looking whenever we would sing a hymn out of the red book or the black book, I found that about two thirds of the songs we sang were in both the red book and the, the black book. And uh, so this, this hymnal um, will combine those two books with almost all of the songs that we sing, many of which are in both hymnals uh, presently, um, as well as bringing in some other songs, some of which are more contemporary in style. And um, so that prompted some lively discussion about the contemporary songs specifically and whether their, their um, lyrics were um, universally, you know, acceptable um, or if they were presenting a wrong gospel or a wrong Jesus or wrong expectations and that sort of thing. So my, my question is, do the lyrics to the song um, or the songs that we sing really matter? Do the lyrics really matter? So, and that kind of segues from what Mike is saying a little bit about coming in and worshiping with the wrong attitude um, we can also worship with the wrong words, uh, clearly. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. And uh, we're just going to read a couple verses from the very beginning. We're going to hop around a little bit um, into the New Testament as well. Uh, starting at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field and the Lord God had uh, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, 
lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So right here at the very beginning of, of um, the sin nature, Satan, first he misquotes God, and then the woman corrects him, but then she adds to the, the uh, misquote, because God never said you can't touch of that fruit, although it's probably not a very healthy thing to do because it would prompt, uh, prompt one to desire it even more once you touch it. Um, maybe it tastes good too. And uh, so the woman was deceived by the serpent and added to the deception. And then the serpent even questions God's word. You shall not surely die. Right? So he's calling God a liar. Now flip over to 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Second Corinthians 11, and we'll start at the first verse and just read a couple of verses. <coughs> Starting at verse 1, 11, 1 of Second Corinthians. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. So Paul is acknowledging that the doctrine of, of Christ should be preeminent, that the woman was deceived, and that he had a deep concern that like the woman being deceived, that the church at Corinth would be deceived um, and, and believe whatever somebody comes and says. All right, the last one we'll turn to, I think, is uh, Matthew chapter 4. And uh, so it's evident that Satan uses deception it's evident that Paul is concerned for the church um, because it's easily enough to be deceived. And uh, Jesus is going to address some of these in four verses five through seven um, when he is tempted by Satan. We'll start at verse five. <clears throat> 
then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So Satan accurately quotes God's word here. He's not uh, misquoting it like he did with Eve. He's ac accurately quoting um, Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. Um, Jesus replies with um, Deuteronomy 6.16. Um, Satan's methods are, are to misquote God, to call God's word irrelevant, to say that God's a liar, and to take out of context verses that um, have no meaning outside of the context that they were in and misapplying them. And that's what Satan did with Jesus in this temptation. Um, all of those uh, forms of deception are resident in Satan's being, and any one of them makes him a deceiver. Uh, and yet he is um, certainly the, the master of all of them. Revelation 12 calls him the deceiver of the world. So pause for a minute and, and uh, think about flying in an airplane. Um, I had to do a little math on this, which taxed my brain. So I cheated and went on the internet. Uh, if a pilot is, sets his compass, there's 360 degrees in a circle on a, on a compass. If he sets his compass just one degree off, here's what the mistakes will be. If he travels 100 yards, not very far, the distance of a football field, or were the Vikings playing today? No, just kidding. <laughs> In 100 yards, he's going to be five feet two inches off. In a mile, as he flies along, he's going to be 92, over 92 feet off course. Okay. If the pilot was flying from Minneapolis St. Paul Airport to O'Hare Airport in Chicago, he's going to be six miles off course with just one degree. And if he flies from uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul to my favorite destination, Sacramento International Airport. Um, he's going to be 26 and a half miles off course. So one degree off true can have devastating consequences down the line. And that is in kind of the physical world. But I think there's a, certainly a, a spiritual application when we preach the word. We're, we're, as elders and teachers, we're told to really pay very close attention to 
our teaching because we'll be held at a higher standard, a very sobering thought. And so we don't want to be even a degree off uh, to the best of our ability. Okay. That brings me to um, the new hymnal and some of the songs that are put in there. They're all very worshipful songs, and I'm not saying anything bad about the uh, hymnal itself or about these songs specifically. Um, in fact, um, I found it very encouraging that Liz knows some of the people who were on the panel that assembled the, the body of songs. Uh, that were put into this hymnal. And one of them is kind of her mentor that helped her um, transition to, to worship music uh, and, and leading um, through her music. So that meant a lot to me. You know, here's somebody in our congregation who has a direct connection um, with the people who produced this. So I don't want to anybody to go away thinking, well, you know, Carl hates all this music because Carl doesn't hate all this music. There is a place, though, in worship for music. There's a place in evangelism for music. There's a place for lament when we just don't know and we're calling out to God um, in, in song. There's a place for camp songs, which may not be particularly worshipful, but they certainly um, are, you know, um, are fun to sing, they call out God's uh, wonderful creation, and, or whatnot. So I'm just going to reference one song here. Um, many of you will know it. It's This is Amazing Grace. There's a couple of instances in that song that is maybe a degree off. And it could present disastrous results for someone who is not grounded in the word down the line. It's number 292 in the new hymnal. The chorus contains the line that you would take my place, that you would bear my cross. So it's singing to Jesus about how wonderful he is for taking his place and bearing our cross. Okay, here's the, the one degree though. Right? It sounds great, Jesus certainly died for me, but Jesus didn't bear my cross, he bore my sin. He became my sin when he bore his own cross and died on that cross. And in fact, um, you know, both of those, uh, there's, there's many verses, but Isaiah 53, 12 and 1 Peter 2, 24 are verses that talk about Jesus bearing our sins and, and that sort of thing. Luke 9, 23, Jesus directed the disciples that if they wanted to follow him, they needed to what? pick up their cross daily and bear it with him. Okay, that didn't mean that they were to 
flog themselves, you know, which in the middle in the uh, Middle Ages that's what they did. Um, they weren't to harm themselves or allow others to harm them or punish them because of their misdeeds and sins and whatnot. No, it meant that they were to show complete submissiveness to Christ Jesus as Jesus submitted to the Father's will by way of the cross. He picked up that cross, the cross of Rome, and carried it all the way up to Golgotha. And he didn't carry my cross. He carried my sin. So it's just one degree that... Um, that could um, lead somebody into kind of a misunderstanding. In the second verse of that same song is this word, this sentence, talking about Jesus who brings our chaos back into order. So what does that mean? Does it mean that my chaos is now a very well-ordered chaos? He brought our chaos back into order. Well, Isaiah 45, 7 says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. In Matthew 5, verse 44, Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So God allows calamity. Sometimes he brings calamity on even the believer who, who is his son or daughter. Um, he brings or allows persecution. It helps us to refine us. It helps us to test, to be tested, so he can um, see the, the metal of our conviction. And it gives us opportunity to express um, who he is to others and his loving mercy. Okay, so, but this verse saying that who brings our chaos back into order um, could lead some um, believer who is less mature in the Lord into thinking, my life is in ruin. I thought God was going to fix all that. And yet, maybe God is giving that person opportunity to, to grow or opportunity to share who he is with somebody else. And so, um, we just need to be real cautious about um, the words of our mouths, whether it's reading scripture and then presenting it to someone, or it's singing a song that we want to think is worshipful, and if it hasn't been tried and tested over generations, like many of the hymns that go back into the 19th century, um, you know, it, 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 may, it hasn't been refined yet to the point where, um, where we can 
uh, fully trust it. So we just have to offer it to him with a, um, a pure heart and, uh, but recognize that there's, there's um, potential in any of the songs that we sing. You know, what's the oldest hymn in the, in the red or the black book? Does anybody know? Um, Martin Luther's goes back into the 1600s. <clears throat> yeah, I actually, if you if you look at the the writer of the words and the the writers of the music, um, there's usually their dates of birth or if they, if they're known and that sort of thing. I found one a couple weeks ago in one of the hymns that um, live. He wrote it or it's recorded as him writing it in 1051 the words were written. Um, so, you know, they go back many generations now, um, a thousand years, some of the, some of the songs. Um, so they've been tested through uh, many, many generations of believers singing them. And uh, when I was in college, 50 years ago almost, um, you know, the, the songs we listened to were the contemporary for the time. Some of them are in the white book. And uh, knowing some of the lyrics in some of those songs, yeah, it's, it's um, perhaps evangelical. Um, it's not particularly worshipful in some cases. So we just have to be cautious about um, the, the music we sing and make sure it's applied appropriately. Irv has commented before that in the hymns, the hymnals up in the corner, there's usually um, like here, Remembrance and the Cross. There's a whole series of songs that are in that genre. Okay, and just before that, you'll come in uh, to worship songs. These are uh, specifically intended or interpreted to be um, worshipful as extending uh, worship to Christ, that sort of thing. Is doctrine in the lyrics important? Well, Paul wrote to Titus, second, or Titus 2, verse 1, but as for you, teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. It's important that we stay true on course to scripture. And uh, doctrine is about putting scripture into an ordered uh, fashion so that it can be presented to people and we can understand it. Anybody have any follow-ups? Yeah. I, mean, I agree with what you were saying. Yeah, I mean, you said teachers are held to a higher standard. And when you open up a hymn book and you're reading that, I mean, it is the hymn writer was in, in a sense putting it on his heart and teaching people for generations and generations kind of what they felt at the time. And if you continue to have, you know, bad doctrine in there, um, you are teaching hypocrisy for years and years and years mm -hmm. and years. So I do think the lyrics definitely do matter. So, and I think there's some even in the red hymnals that have some lyrics that aren't quite right. Yeah, like when we sing, there are. take time to be holy, people always change it to take time to behold him. And Jesus loves me, the third phrase, or whatever somebody pointed out one time, that it's not actually doctrinally, biblically accurate. 
Yeah. We've always yeah. had that problem. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. When you were mentioning it, I said, I know when I'm singing some of the Red Book, mm -hmm. we'll sing and I'll be like, I'll just feel like, oh, that doesn't feel right. <laughs> Something isn't right with this, yeah. with these lyrics. Um, yeah. So there is even that in the, in the Red Books. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I do at home is I go, I got hymnals at home. And when we decided to go ahead and order these hymnals, I ordered two, one for Nancy and one for me. I I study the music, the words at home, and then I go to the Bible, and I just wanted to share something that uh, my son sent me a video, and this guy quoted scripture about five or six times. Every time it was out of context, every time. First thing I thought about was when the Lord was tempted in how Satan used the word of God. This guy was using the word of God to try to get his agenda out. It wasn't factual. So I looked up one word. If you look up the word uh, rationalization and look up the meaning, and actually what it really means is an attempt to make the unreasonable sound reasonable. <laughs> And that's exactly what people do with the word of God sometimes. And I believe that our teaching, we kind of keep one another in check. Uh, if I teach wrong, somebody's going to call me on it. And that's good. Because sometimes we do make mistakes. Even the best of us can make mistakes. Yeah. And But when the songwriters wrote the songs, did anybody put them in check? You know, and I know that some of these old songs that we sing that are tried and uh, they just, they're sound. So we're going to stay with them. Note that the words of our hymns should be, should not be con uh, con contradictory to God's word. The word should be biblically sound and doctrinally correct. And I think that's what's what everybody worries about i think when we talk about getting a new hymnal you know so yeah but it's the same with a new translation of the bible or a paraphrase it's the same same concept you know are they being true to the original texts to communicate accurately even some of the songwriters didn't like exactly Charles Wesley. He didn't like it. Those "Hark the Herald Angels Sing" when it was he originally had "Hark the Herald the Heavenly Hosts." Uh -huh. he, yeah. he didn't like it that they had that, but they changed it to "Angels" to fit the tune. <laughs> so sometimes you have things like that. Uh -huh. Yeah. Okay. Would one of you guys like to close in prayer? Yeah. Thanks. Uh, dear Father, we thank you for, for this time that we can gather here um, as an assembly of believers, and um, we thank you for this discussion where we can um, discuss things like um, music and lyrics and worship, Lord, and I, I pray that um, we left this with uh, some better understanding and maybe even some more questions, Lord, that we can ponder and we can think deeper and longer about these things. and. Lord, we, we do want to be obedient to your word. Uh, we want to be doctrinally sound, Lord. And we just pray that if there um, is anything more that needs to be discussed, that we would be able to do that um, also, Lord. And, but we just do thank you for um, this church, this body of believers, Lord. And we pray that uh, all in Jesus' name.